Good morning. I invite you once again this week to open your copy of the Word of God to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We're taking these weeks leading up to Easter to walk through a portion of Scripture that some have called the gospel of the Old Testament, the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53. One early church father suggested that we call the prophet Isaiah the evangelist instead of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 53 is where we're going to read in just a moment. Isaiah 53 gives us amazingly accurate details and descriptions of Jesus, including details about Jesus' death and resurrection 700 years before Jesus was even born. And we'll see those descriptions and, and we'll walk through those details through this sermon series that I'm calling By His Stripes. I mentioned last week that most Jews have never read Isaiah 53 because Isaiah 53 is never included in synagogue readings. Now, it is true that Jewish people can read Isaiah 53 anytime they want. But Pew Research found that 65% of Jews say that they're the ones who give the answers. 65% of Jews say that they seldom or never read the scriptures. The only faith group that had a higher percentage of those who seldom or never read the scriptures were those who profess no faith at all. 79% of the religious nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, but religious nuns, 79% of religious nuns said that they seldom or never read the Scriptures. I throw those statistics out onto the table, not to shame our Jewish friends, but rather to say that it's not a good faith rejection of Jesus as Messiah if a person never reads the Scriptures. As we walk through Isaiah 53, these five Sundays, at the very least, I hope you'll be curious. But if I'm completely transparent with you, I pray you'll be convinced. Isaiah 53 is a song. It is the song of the suffering servant. It is a song of five stanzas. Each stanza has three verses. And this is no small detail, but for 1,700 years after Isaiah wrote these words, Jewish rabbis believed and taught that these words described Messiah. For 1,700 years, 700 years before Christ, 1,000 years after Christ. Now, I'm not saying the Jewish rabbis believed and taught that Jesus was that Messiah. That's not what I'm saying. But for 1,700 years after Isaiah wrote these words, the Jewish community was convinced that they described Messiah. Let's read Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1, reading down through verse 3. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, rejected of men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. We're talking today about the sorrow of the suffering servant. The sorrow of the suffering servant. Last week we talked about the success of the suffering servant. Success that was guaranteed before the fact. In the weeks to come, Lord willing, we're going to see the substitution of the suffering servant. We're going to see his sacrifice. And then we will bring all of that to a crescendo by by seeing his salvation. But today we are talking about the sorrow of the suffering servant. And I get that idea from verse 3 where Messiah is called a man of sorrows. That word sorrow, incidentally, is, is often translated as pain in the Bible. That pain could be a physical pain. It could be an emotional pain, but pain. Well, pastor, was Jesus's sorrow physical or emotional? And the answer to that question is yes. His pain was both emotional and physical. Jesus suffered the emotional pain of leaving the glories of heaven, walking down the staircase of time and stepping onto the stage of history, his story. And there was emotional pain when, as God, he took on the form and flesh of our humanity. And who could ever measure both the emotional and physical pain of bearing the wrath of God against our sin upon the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's emotional sorrow to a degree that you and I cannot even begin to imagine. And Isaiah goes on to describe the physical sorrow of the suffering servant. Messiah would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Verse 4, he would, he would be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5. The Lord would cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 6, he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Verse 7, he would be cut off out of the land of the living. Verse 8, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Verse 10 and verse 12 says that he would pour out himself to death, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. By the way, you might notice that these verbs in our text are in the past tense, as if Isaiah were writing about something that had already happened. In fact, this is one of the arguments that those who reject Jesus as Messiah make, that these things had already happened, so they could not possibly be describing a future Messiah, or Jesus could not possibly have fulfilled these if they were indeed prophecies. But that's not nearly the aha moment that some people think that it is. For starters, ancient Hebrew did not have tense like you and I think of tense, past, present, and future tenses. Modern Hebrew has tenses, but not biblical Hebrew. What reads like past tense to us in this passage is actually known as the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect where the future is so certain that it's described as having already happened. And to God who is eternal, 
and for whom past, present, and future are all simultaneous, the future has already happened. That's why and that's how he can be so certain and so specific in his prophecies. As we walk verse by verse through this incredible chapter, we become more and more convinced that only Jesus could fulfill these prophecies. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But why is that? Why, why the sorrows? Well, besides the reasons that I've already given, if I had to answer that question in a single sentence, I think I would use John chapter 1, verse 11 that echoes our passage. And here's what it says. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The very ones who should have expected him rejected him. And they rejected him because he was not what they expected. Here's how Isaiah said it. Once again, 700 years before Jesus was even born. He begins with two rhetorical questions that exemplify for us the rejection of Messiah. He asks, first of all, who has believed our message? That's, a, that's, a, that's one way of, of asking who has not believed our message he's, he's talking about unbelief here. Who has believed our message? But this is the rejection of Messiah's words. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord speaks of, of the Lord's power to save. And so this is the rejection of Messiah's works. And so we see in this, these two a rhetorical questions, the rejection of his words and the rejection of his works. Actually, we see this fulfilled in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 37 and 38. Jesus quotes this verse. Uh, these, these verses say this, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Though he proclaimed the words of God and performed the works of God, people did not believe in Jesus. Isaiah said it would happen. 700 years before it did, Isaiah said it would happen. Messiah would be rejected because he would not be what people expected. And this, is, this, this would be no more true than in their rejection of his person. They would reject his words. They would reject his works. But they would reject his person. They refused to believe what he said and even what they saw. But that's because they refused to believe in who he was. His arrival and his appearance did not align with their messianic expectations. This is what we read in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
He grew up like a tender shoot. They expected some explosive entry into the world by Messiah. But Jesus was deemed insignificant to them. If anything, Jesus' birth and life had clouds of scandal attached to them because Mary became pregnant out of wedlock and then she told that story that she was still a virgin. You can imagine how many people were in disbelief of Mary's story. But Jesus came into the world in relative obscurity, announced by angels to, to just a few shepherds at nighttime at that. And in of all places, a tiny town called Bethlehem, which just happened to be the birthplace of King David. This should not have surprised anyone of the Jewish faith. Isaiah in chapter 11 verse 1 promised about Messiah's coming that a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was father to the shepherd boy who became king of Israel, David. The Jewish people should have expected their Messiah to show up the way he did. Instead, they rejected him. He grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. It was true of Israel when Isaiah spoke those words, and it would be true 700 years later that the nation for which and into which Messiah was born was spiritually dry and spiritually barren. And so when Jesus showed up like a root out of parched ground, his life and his spirituality were so offensive to those who were spiritually dead because he was something they were not. And he had something they did not. How many people today, even countless church folk, reject the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, because he doesn't look and act and think and talk like them? Well, pastor, how can I know that I'm following the true Jesus? Well, one way to know is if the Jesus you follow never contradicts or corrects you, always agrees with you, you're almost certainly not following the Jesus of the Bible. That's, that's a virtual guarantee. But not only did his arrival not align with their messianic expectations, neither did his appearance. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I have to confess, and, and it's always, you know, it makes me a little nervous when I tell you some of my thoughts. My mind is a scary place sometimes. But, but I have to confess that I've always imagined Adam and Eve to be the most perfectly beautiful creatures God created. Adam would have had a Hollywood smile and Eve would have been a looker. And since Jesus was the second Adam, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I've always thought that handsome was too unworthy a word to describe Jesus and his appearance as a man. I've envisioned Jesus with the perfect face, perfect eyes, perfect nose, perfect smile, perfect teeth, perfect hair. In my mind's eye, he had the perfect body, perfect build, perfect biceps, perfect hands, perfect feet, perfect everything. 
because that's our idea of perfect, external perfection. And that's what we value as human beings, appearances, oftentimes more than substance. But surprisingly, Isaiah says that Messiah would not have the kind of physical appearance that stops people in their tracks. He wouldn't grab people's attention just by his looks. When Jesus walked the earth, his physical appearance was not unusual. It was unimpressive. He wasn't like some of the artist's renderings where Jesus glowed and had a constant halo above his head. He just looked like an average guy. I, I should say at this point that some interpret these words to echo those in chapter 52, verse 14, that say his appearance was marred beyond that of a man and his form beyond the sons of mankind. I don't agree with that interpretation. And, and here's why. Those words describe the suffering... I'm talking chapter 52, uh, verse 14. Those words describe the suffering servant's appearance after having been marred, disfigured, through crucifixion. But I don't read chapter 53, verse 2, as describing Messiah's disfigured appearance, but rather his appearance in general. The way he looked during the course of his earthly ministry, he was just an average-looking guy. I don't mean that with disrespect at all. If anything, that is a beautiful thing to, to know that he really did identify with our humanity. But, but what I'm simply saying is that Isaiah describes Jesus, describes the coming Messiah, and he describes him as being an average-looking guy. Now, why does this even matter? Why would I spend three seconds even talking about this? Because Jesus is not interested in attracting people by superficial things that have no eternal value. If you're following Jesus for insincere reasons, maybe political posturing or temporal trivialities, I can promise you your faith will not last Jesus is not interested in drawing us to himself through supernatural means. Pastor, are you suggesting that some people follow Jesus for the wrong reasons? Absolutely. John chapter 6, verse 66 tells us that much. That scripture says that from that time, many of his disciples walked no more with him, went back, walked no more with him, meaning that the, the crowds, the masses, we're not talking the 12 here, we're talking the thousands. They went back and walked no more with him. And so they were with him for a season and then they were gone. They followed Jesus as long as he entertained them with his miracles and he fed them out of his mercy. But when he engaged them at the heart level, they were not interested. Isaiah prophesied that Messiah would be rejected because of his words, he would be rejected because of his works, and he would be rejected even because of his person. But even more than that, even more than rejected, he would be despised. That word carries an idea, carries a connotation that is, is heavy and is... is um, uh, offensive. It is, it is hostile. 
in nature. He would be despised. Look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Esteeming someone is the opposite of despising them. To esteem is to give value. So to despise is, is to say that, that something or someone in this case is worthless, not worth even noticing. That's the reception Isaiah prophesied, and that's the reception Jesus got. And you know why? Because everything about Jesus, unassuming and unimpressive as his appearance was, everything Jesus was about contradicted people's sinful hearts and lives, and they hated him for it. They wanted Jesus to affirm them and join them in their sin, and his holiness would not allow for that, and they hated him for it. They wanted their lusts for power and reputation to be validated by Jesus, but his kingdom values, his kingdom ethic would not allow for that, and they hated him for it. They wanted Messiah to agree with their ideas about God and faith, but Jesus knew their faith was wrong because their ideas about God were wrong, and they hated him for it. They hated Jesus so much, in fact, that they would eventually kill him. The sorrow of the suffering servant was about more than what Jesus would physically endure on the cross. The heart of God was grieved that people profess one thing with their lips while their hearts are far from him. Jesus said in Luke 10, 16, he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Or as the King James Version says, he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. What, what, what is that saying? Jesus clearly said, there, there's, there's no confusion about what he said. He clearly said that to reject the Son is to reject the Father. To reject me, to despise me, is to reject or to despise the one who sent me. If you've been to Israel, you no doubt went to the Western Wall and saw many people, mainly Jewish people, praying at the wall. Many Orthodox Jewish people with their prayer shawls, uh, men separated from the women, but, but gathered at the walls, and, and they've, they've got the scriptures, they've got their phylacteries, and they're, they're rocking at the wall, and they're praying, and, and these, these individuals will go to the Western Wall, and they will pray all day long, and they will pray, and they will pray, and they will pray. The Western Wall is on the west side of the Temple Mount where the first and second temples were built before they were both destroyed. The Western Wall is also known as the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall because of the Jewish practice of coming to the site to mourn and to weep over the destruction of the temple. My heart is sorrowful every time I go there. I have to confess it is not my favorite place to go in Israel. 
I, I, just, I just have sick grief every time I go to the wailing wall. But my sorrow, my sadness is not because the temple is gone. I'm grieved that those who mourn the destruction of an earthly temple despise and reject one greater than the temple, Christ Jesus, Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, check it out. And in so doing, they reject God altogether. In rejecting the Son as Messiah, they reject the Father as God. It is impossible to worship the one true God but reject Jesus as anointed Savior and Lord. He that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Don't fall for the lie that you and God have a thing but Jesus isn't included. Don't fall for the lie that that says that, that you're on the road to heaven but Jesus expects nothing of you. 